Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey listeners, Chris Webster here. As I mentioned last week, we are replaying episodes from other podcasts on the Archaeology Podcast Network so we can expose you to some of these great shows that we have on the network. There's a new one that started this year called Tea Break Time Travel, and it's hosted by Matilda Siebrecht, and she actually started with an Instagram channel, and you can find that at the underscore archaeologists underscore teacup. And what she does on that channel is has short videos about a single artifact and just some history around it. Well, the podcast is based around a similar idea, except she brings on a expert or somebody familiar with that time period or object or whatever the case may be, and then discusses it. And she's got this whole thing about drinking tea while they're doing it and the type of tea. It's very awesome. I love it. (laughs) So you have to check it out. This episode is actually her episode three called Forges, Fieldwork, and Frying Pans. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Check it out and hopefully you can discover the Tea Break Time Travel Podcast. It's monthly, so not a heavy time commitment if, if you don't have a lot more podcast time in your schedule, but I think you can fit this one in. So enjoy this one. And again, we will see you back with some brand new episodes and some good interviews in November. On to the show. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Hi, and welcome to this third time traveling expedition, aka episode of Tea Break Time Travel. I'm your host, Matilda Siebrecht, and today I am drinking a lovely rhubarb tea. I seem to be drinking fruity teas all the time. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. I'm your host, Matilda Siebrecht, and today I am savouring a fruity rhubarb tea. And joining me on my tea break today is Zachariah Jinks-Friedrich. I said it wrong, even though we just did it, but it's fine. I'll continue. Um, what are you drinking today, Zach? I'm just having some coffee. Thank you. <laughs> coffee. Are you more a coffee man than a tea person? Coffee for the mornings, tea for the afternoons. For coffee, it's usually a Sumatra roast. Dark roast. For tea, it's usually Iron Goddess of Mercy. Iron Goddess of Mercy. That sounds like an amazing... What's the flavor of that? (laughs) Uh, It's it's a type of oolong that comes from southern China. It's also known as Kikuan Yin, which is just a really healthy antioxidant uh, green tea. So. Oh, wow. Gosh, you know your teas. Wow. I feel like a, <laughs> a fraud fraud here. A charlatan just drinking my rhubarb tea. But um, I have to say, I got like, actually the main reason I got into teas was I started drinking all these different fruity and herbal and different sort of ones. Like I got a orange and carrot one at some point. I was like, I didn't even know tea could be like this. I assumed it always had to be these, yeah, these special teas. But uh, anyway, but good. Okay. No, nice. And the coffee, black coffee, coffee with milk, coffee with sugar. <laughs> Coffee with uh, double cream. Cream even. Ah, <laughs> oh, nice, 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 nice. And do you uh, often savour an Irish coffee as well? 
I do sometimes, yeah. On the weekends, especially. <laughs> nice, nice. Maybe not, I guess, we're recording this in the morning, so I would maybe judge you slightly if you were. <laughs> I'm drinking an Irish tea coffee at this point. Anyway, good. So, Zach, you are an archaeologist as well as being a blacksmith. How did you get into archaeology? I got into archaeology, I suppose, by... Well, I suppose with my undergraduate degree, I started in anthropology and history and just found that I enjoyed archaeology more. You know, it was just one of those things to, to I suppose, transition into. I started in criminal justice. Um, wow. I just found that I, I don't know, I just found like I was going to get too stuck in that. And it didn't, I wasn't happy with where I was living. I wanted to travel the world more and just have more control over my life. So I decided that archaeology was a good way to do that. Yeah, so that's kind of it. And then with my background previously with metalworking and just my own interest in it, that kind of brought me into archaeometallurgy, which is what my passion is. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. Sorry, you just threw that out of the blue there, like criminal justice. So I guess you weren't necessarily one of these. I mean, I think a lot of archaeologists, when you say, how did you become interested in archaeology? They always say, oh, since I was you know, born, I've wanted to dig in the ground and everything. So that wasn't you? Uh, that wasn't me. No, it was just it was an elective uh, where I was doing my criminal justice degree and I took it. It was world archaeology. I needed to make an elective up and it sounded good. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And it just felt like that's more what I should do. Yeah, That's really funny. (laughs) That was exactly the same with me, actually. I was doing, I think, well, I started doing film and then I changed to Spanish at some point. I was doing a Spanish degree. And then my friend was doing an archaeology degree and the course she was doing was all about like you know the origins of humans and all of that kind of thing and I've always been really interested in human evolution and all of that kind of things and I was like why am I not doing this so I did it as a elective in the next semester and loved it and changed my degree and had to catch up and do all of those things so it's uh, it's nice to find a fellow a fellow person who discovered it later in life shall we say yes <laughs> I agree <laughs> And so you mentioned that you were doing blacksmithing already before. Uh, yeah, it would. My father has always been interested in it, and uh, he never really partook too much himself. But he, we were always going to like events and things like that, where there was farriers or blacksmiths making things. And he was trained originally uh, as a welder, so he had a good knowledge already of, of metalworking. And we used to build things together in the shop in the garage. And for me, it was just kind of a seemed like a natural progression to kind of pursue that interest alongside him when I was a teenager. Um, I started doing more things and going to more kind of events. Um, I, I, when I was 14, I worked with a farrier for a summer and I learned a lot from him and that was really quite nice as well. But I decided I, I hate making horseshoes. So I was like, I'm not going to be a farrier. That's for sure. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so, because I guess the sort of welding and the modern blacksmithing techniques, are they still quite different to Password? I mean, I guess we'll get into this later, but like just a quick, a quick intro, maybe. A quick intro. Yeah, a quick <laughs> intro would be depends on what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot of differences and there's a lot of similarities. So it's really coming down to what you're manufacturing. Okay. So you were able to use that experience that you had in the past with the welding and the more sort of modern metalworking metal techniques, excuse me, to look then at more past techniques or sort of past activities. That's really cool. That's a really nice thing. Quick question before we continue. If you could then travel back in time, this is an interesting one for you, especially because you haven't always been interested in archaeology and history necessarily before uni. 
where would you go if you could travel back in time and why? Well, I think I'd probably travel back to the early medieval period or the Iron Age. I was always, from the time I was probably about, I don't know, four years old, I was always obsessed with, you know, kind of the Crusades and the Dark Ages and the Vikings. And I just always loved that period of history so much. So I think I'd probably go back to that time. I think I do that still with my own reenactment stuff when I go to my different events that I do. But to be honest, I mean, it just feels like you're cosplaying as an adult, which is a bit, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 it's scientific experiment. <laughs> I'm also a big fan of experimental archaeology and reenactment, and I always think, no, 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 this is this is uh, scientific. It's <laughs> it's my work. It's not it's me having fun. <laughs> but, well, we'll get into more of that in a bit, but thank you very much for joining me on my tea break today. And before we look at today's object, which... Uh, you can all probably guess what that might be. Let's first journey back a few hundred years to 1808 and the site of Bush Barrow in Normanton Downs. So the sun is starting to set over the grassy fields. You can picture the scene, swathes of bushes and trees, the mounds of various barrows faintly visible in the surrounding dusk. A crisscross of trenches cuts into the field and standing over the site is William Cunnington, who's often considered the father of modern archaeological excavation. His very curly hair, according to the pictures I found, blows across his face with its very prominent nose, bushy eyebrows, and he bends down and picks up a tool that one of the diggers had forgotten to pack away. It's a little handheld tool with a triangular-shaped blade, sort of triangular diamond-shaped blade, and a very rough wooden handle, very popular with the diggers, as it's less unwieldy than a spade, but still allows the efficient removal of soil around more delicate finds. A report from this bush barrow site is actually the first written record that we have of the use of an archaeologist's trowel, which is the kind of theme of this episode today. So we'll get into the details soon. But first, I started doing this thing where I look at the most asked questions on the internet, inspired by the autocomplete Google interview um, that they have sometimes. So uh, courtesy of Google search, I typed in archaeologist trowel and seen saw what came up. There weren't too many different things, but the first one was... Is an archaeologist's trowel safe? What would you say to that, Zach? I guess I don't quite understand the what, what they're saying. Is it safe know, from being weird, stolen? Right? Or is it safe to use? I mean, it is pointy. It's kind of like a spearhead. I've always thought that basically a trowel is a spearhead. So I'm not quite sure what they're getting at there. <laughs> I guess it, you could say, because I suppose most archaeology trowels are blunt, right? Like they're not completely sharp or do you have some that are sharp? Ooh, that's an entire school of thought. Like that <laughs> is, there's like a whole cult following of this. Okay. Should it be sharp? Should it not be sharp? And <gasps> Americans especially, they're like, it needs to be, it needs to be sharpened and it needs to have a very fine edge. It needs to be very pointy. Uh, more as most, you know, British and European diggers are more like, well, it needs to be worn. It doesn't need to be sharpened. You don't want to grind it down. And even a lot of people like in Scotland that come to find really like a rounded point on them because they find it's easier to excavate post holes. And it seems there's a lot of post holes in Scotland from what I've been told. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. As someone who did their undergraduate degree in Scotland and had to do some excavation practice, I can say it's a lot of post holes, <laughs> which, um, you know, for those who are interested in it, great. Um, but uh, I have to say after a while of looking at a different color of soil, I got a little bit um, bored with it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I remember first getting my first archaeology trial and I was trying to work out whether to get the 
I was looking up like, what's the best one? And in the end, I ended up ordering from you and got one from Anvil and you, um, which we'll talk about again in a bit. Yeah, I was looking at whether to get, what's it, WHS or Marshalltown or something. Those seem to be like the two big mm. brands. And I made the mistake of posting on my Facebook, archaeology friends, which one do you have? Like, I can't decide. And oh my gosh, like it was a full, I've never had so many comments on a post before. It was all these different people and it seemed to be very strongly one or the other. But apparently there are, it's sort of different ones for different soil types. So, I mean, based on your experience with with making them, what would you sort of suggest depending on, I don't know, which soil type or which which region you're in, what kind of trowels would you suggest for people to get? Uh, I know that a lot, well, I make different patterns now as well. So I have your classic Philadelphia pattern, your classic London pattern, and then also my own pattern, which is the one I sell the most common of. My pattern is modified basically from the traditional pointing trowel, which puts the angle of the shoulders um, at a 26.8 degree angle from the rise. Okay. That makes it sharp enough to uh, cut soil when you pull back to yourself, as well as giving a long enough blade to really tease out delicate things around larger stones. I find it works really well with uh, excavating slightly gravelly soil and also Roman sites especially. Okay. And it does really well with Roman sites. Your more diamond-shaped trowels, which are really, which are your kind of more Philadelphia pattern, those ones are much more common to see where you have a lot softer soils. Uh, they're much more widely used in places like Greece and Italy, where their soils are come off in more like plates rather than as, mm. I suppose, granules, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, your London pattern, I mean, that's very similar. It's just a little bit of a, a wider shape with a little bit more of a blunt nose. I mean, my, my pattern is very similar to that. And when I say blunt nose, I mean, it's just, uh, it's not a perfect point. It's uh, about a two mil point. Mm -hmm. And that's just your standard kind of shape. I mean, it's, it's in between kind of a diamond and the triangular design that I usually go with. There's also, of course, other modifications that you see. Sometimes you get rounded shoulders. Sometimes you get heart shapes. It's really down to, I think, personal preference as well. I mean, the broader the trowel in terms of the width of the widest point, the less control you're going to have over it. So you're going to want to use it on softer soils. See, I never knew this when I started archaeology, that there were so many different specializations for, for all the different trials. So do you, I, I guess, do you have a lot of experience with excavation as well yourself? Uh, I do, yeah. I worked as a commercial archaeologist for six years. Oh, okay, nice. And so did you then have kind of a, a toolkit or is it more standardized? I'm speaking now as someone who has done excavations, but I'm more the post-excavation side of things. So I uh, mm. have my one trowel um, that I use when I'm excavating. But I mean, for people who are excavating more regularly, are there then, do you have your toolkit of different trowels? types for different soil types? Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I kind of go more with the versatile uh, approach myself. I mean, certainly some people have more specific things. Uh, well, I say that, but people who do it enough usually always have their own toolkit in some way or another. Mm -hmm. My specialty toolkit is more oriented towards focusing on uh, small finds themselves. Mm. So when I excavate human remains, I prefer to use a bone tool or a, a wood tool for 
things like pottery. Again, I like to go with a wood tool mm-hmm. for things like metal objects. I typically go with either metal or bone. Uh, both work really well uh, around that. And when you say bone tool, just quickly, like, do you mean sort of a, a like a sort of spatula type thing or what kind of what does that look like the the bone tools well one of the things i find works really well uh, and it avoids me having to make things because i don't really like working with bone <laughs> i thought you were about to say i don't really like making things i was like uh <laughs> this might not be a good time to say that sorry carry on <laughs> <laughs> no sorry um yeah i like to use what are called bone creasers or bone folders for bookmakers I find those work really well. I mean, you can, of course, make your own tools out of you know, your your roast lamb leg from Sunday <laughs> Sunday brunch. Um, <laughs> but it's all up to, I suppose, personal preference. I mean, I knew a guy that he used a, a piece of broken cow bone for years wow. um, that he picked up out of a field. So... <laughs> <laughs> which I guess fits nicely into the next question, which was what are archaeologists' tools? So I guess the answer to that would be whatever you want. <laughs> like... <laughs> Basically, yeah. I, the number of people that I have met that use ladles, soup ladles for excavation is just phenomenal to me really? because personally I hate them because they're too flimsy. Yeah, okay. I'm trying to picture one. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Which was also really interesting, though, that there's so many different, I mean, that's like when we, I mean, when you look at tools in the past, which is basically what I do, and it's always assumed like, oh, yes, and this was used for that, and this was used for that. But it's like, okay, even even if you look at the archaeology toolkit that we're using to excavate this past, you're using a soup ladle, you know, to, to excavate the soil. Like, it's amazing how <laughs> how many different things can be yes. repurposed, shall we say. <laughs> For, uh, for that kind of things. <laughs> in when I worked in when I worked in America on an excavation, it was in the desert southwest, so we had lots of sand. It was uh, big sand dunes. It was a uh, uh, Virgin Pueblo Anasazi was the cultural group, and because it was just literally sand and digging sand out of uh, pit dwellings, oh, um, I, I saw people even using frying pans <laughs> and using <laughs> using those as like a scoop. So it's, it's a case of you adapt with your environment, I think. Fair, fair. So for any, you know, people listening who want to start a career in archaeology, don't, you know, well, obviously go to Anvil and you and buy yourself a lovely trowel. But in terms of the rest of your toolkit, don't worry too much. <laughs> like you'll, you'll find yeah. something, I guess. The final exactly. question that I found was, are archaeology trowels any good? Which again, is one of those questions, which I'm not really sure what the google search was getting at i guess maybe because i i the question that i got a lot when i was working in commercial archaeology was you know people saying oh but why are you using that tiny little trout like you know why aren't you using a massive Mm. spade or a shovel or something i mean would you Mm. say that they're effective i would say they're effective but uh what's your professional opinion oh yeah i think that the trowel is the key object to have in your toolkit i mean it's going to be the thing that you're going to grab the most and this is why i i use two different sizes of trowels um and two different shapes i use a pointed trowel and i use a margin trowel which is a square trowel and it's gonna i mean it's the first thing you're going to grab it's the best tool to use it really is you know improvised tools really come about when you don't have quite the right thing in your toolkit to get it something you haven't encountered before and so i mean i think that also we think about um when we you know, ask the question, are archaeology trials any good? I think some people are also wondering about the quality of them because they're familiar maybe with the pointing trial and they hear about an archaeology trial and they think, well, they look the mm-hmm. same. Is there a difference in them? And they might wonder about, you know, quality of the metal or so on and so forth. Currently, 
I am the only person, uh, the only business, uh, the Anvil New is, that offers archaeology trowels and pointing trowels in stainless steel and high carbon steel. No one else in the world does that. Um, that's going to last you a lot longer. And it's going to uh, stay sharp longer. It's going to uh, work better in gravels, especially. So I would recommend that for, for the investment because that is going to improve the life uh, of the tool itself. I can attest as well, the trowels from Anvil and you, not only are they extremely strong, but they look amazing. So yes, for any new archaeology uh, <laughs> students or anything who need to get a new one, definitely worth the investment. Also, just because you'll look really cool on the uh, excavation. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we know a little bit more uh, about the <laughs> archaeologist trial. But uh, maybe, uh, Zach, based on your level of expertise, you could tell us a bit more about the kind of history of tools and I guess blacksmithing in general. So, I mean, when did blacksmithing either as we know it today or as kind of a, a starting concept, when did it actually start? Most people think of blacksmithing as having started in the iron. But they would be a little bit off actually because black, the roots in blacksmithing, the very structure of what it is originates in really, if you want to think about it, the Chocolithic, the, the Copper Age in uh, the Near East. A lot of the techniques being used to hammer out copper objects from raw ore or from even smelted ore are then employed in the Iron Age later on. There's also some extent that those techniques are refined in the Bronze Age itself throughout Europe. Most people think that bronze objects are always cast. And that is true to an extent. They are always cast, but sometimes they're forged down further. Some of the work that we've seen from Sheffield Science Department for archaeology, we see that uh, the very ends of some bronze axes demonstrate a grain structure that's elongated and much more compact. Now, that could occur from use, but it's more likely that it, it's also occurred, uh, well, since what are called ghost structures are not present throughout that entire grain structure. I don't want to get too complicated here, but basically what we're saying is that means that it was probably heated at the end and hammered sharp, basically. And what that does is that makes it a stronger object. And so they knew that was happening in the Bronze Age. And so those concepts are then re-employed and further advanced and built upon in the Iron Age. Mm. And we use those same principles and concepts today. Whenever you take a bloom of iron um, or a bar, a billet of iron, and you forge it into a shape, what you're doing is you're changing the microstructures of that metal. You're elongating it and you're compacting it. And if you think about it in the same way that diamonds and other gemstones are formed, they are formed under extreme heat and pressure. It's kind of the same thing with base metals. That extreme heat and pressure 
from the hammer blows forces those grains closer together, which makes them stronger. It binds them together more securely. Okay. And I can remember I did one blacksmithing thing in my life. I worked with uh, Dave Budd in Exeter to do my undergraduate thesis. And we were doing steel sort of uh, working, but also iron working beforehand. And it was really interesting for me to see indeed that the steel is that much stronger than iron. I mean, the iron, it seemed that you could really almost overwork it or you could overdo things. So you mentioned that hammering and sort of working the bronze made it stronger, but then I found, again, I'm an extreme amateur in this. So, you know, I could be just being one of these Google search people. But um, to me, it almost seemed that the the raw iron, so the sort of first ones that were being used, might not necessarily have been stronger than bronze. Or was it? Why? What was, was the advantage, basically, of iron? Mm. Why did we start using iron over other precious metals? Well, you're, previous metals? You're very right about that. And this comes down to two principles, whether or not it's a binary or a uh, tertiary alloy when we talk about iron. I mean, steel is defined throughout the, how do you want to say it, the metallurgical community as having a carbon content greater than 0.07% by weight. So anything below that is considered to be iron. Now, in the Iron Age, especially in the early Iron Age, what we're seeing is we're seeing iron that our actual iron. It's very low carbon content. We're looking at carbon contents as little as 0.03%, which is just absolutely... Oh, sorry. I I said that wrong. It actually should be 0.007% and 0.003% is what we're looking Mm. at. Right. Yeah. yeah. For those those early Iron Age things. That that extra zero makes a huge difference. And just to (laughs) put that kind of into perspective, like our modern tools still so think like your spanners, wrenches, uh, even your hammers, things like that, their carbon content on those um, is usually between 0.9 and 0.12% carbon. Oh, wow. Okay. Cast, <laughs> yeah. So carbon has a very unique uh, effect to the uh, grain structures of ferrous objects. Now, you think like we, you, we've all heard of cast iron. Cast iron is defined as having more than 2.5% carbon within its uh, its sell its object by weight okay. um, and so, so that makes it significantly stronger brittle. than than steel yeah oh brittle okay brittle yes the yes. more carbon you put into something the more brittle it becomes i see okay and that's something that people don't always realize mm. so when we're talking about malleable iron we're talking about iron that has a you know a carbon content of less than 0.007 percent we're looking at you know those early raw irons where they have not been able to we use the term cement, uh, cement the carbon with inside the grain structures itself. Okay. Usually this has to do with uh, a lack of good airflow and a, a lack of introducing carbon throughout different stages of the process. Um, by the later Iron Age, even as early as the Middle Iron Age, uh, you know, circa about 300 BC in Britain, we're starting to see steels coming about, but they're not what we know as steels today. They're not homogenous. They're heterogeneous. So that means there's pockets of really low carbon iron. There's pockets of medium carbon steel. And even in those little pockets of steel, there are horrible conglomerations of glassy slag inclusions which again, Uh, that affects the the structure of things. And it's those glassy slag inclusions are really icky. 
uh, basically, to use a technical <laughs> term. <laughs> so they clearly knew that the the steel was a good thing, or was you know it was more uh, less brittle, shall we say? But they were still trying to work out how yes. to do it. <laughs> exactly. Well, they knew that making that steel made it harder and made it something that lasted longer and was better than certainly the bronze. But now going back to the, you know, your original question about mm, yeah. you know, the, the benefit of this softer iron, was there a benefit to it? I think that there is. They had this new material. I think it came about as necessity, at least in some places. Uh, a lot of the tin mines were disappearing by the start of the Iron Age. And tin was becoming a more and more scarce resource. And mm-hmm. they had this new metal. And I think they said, well, what can we do with this? And mm-hmm. as they worked with it more and more, they began to find that it did work as well as bronze. Mm-hmm. Now, specifically, one thing makes iron we'll just actually say wrought iron, so iron less than 0.007%, closer to bronze and and harder like bronze is phosphorus. And that's an interesting perspective because that makes that tertiary alloy I was describing. And uh, phosphorus is commonly found in what's known as bog ore. And we know that in the Iron Age, they were exploiting bogs specifically for the ore so that they could have that higher phosphorus content because they knew that the ore came, that coming from those bogs worked better. And what okay. that phosphorus does in the iron is it, it makes what are called uh, Newman bands, uh, one, and also two ghost structures during hammering. It can be worked at a lower temperature and it work hardens much better and it work hardens much more like bronze. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if you quench it. See, it's an interesting material because having spoke with Henry Clear, as well as Peter Crew, and even Craddock, for that matter, about working with phosphoric iron, you come to find that the forging of it is very different than what we're familiar with, with both heterogeneous as well as homogeneous irons and steels. And that higher phosphorus content, usually it's a content that's greater than 1%, makes the steel... Again, brittle. And if you overwork it, it causes the steel, or well, I should say the iron itself, to crack and break. And it can't even be rewelded or repaired. So it was actually very tricky to, to work the metal in that early period. And I think one thing that they would have also observed that I've come to find in my own research is that the more they used this phosphoric iron, the harder it did become. And so the more it actually saw use, the more it started to become more like the bronzes that they were familiar with. Of course, as more knowledge was gained towards, you know, middle, later Iron Age, things again refined, as I've already said. So I'll just leave that there. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really interesting then that they definitely, I mean, it obviously then took a while, I guess, before yes. they arrived at something that where they were like, okay, this is a good usable material. So it's amazing yes. that they stuck with it for that long. I mean, if they hadn't, if, you know, imagine if whoever was doing it was like, ugh, no, this sucks. We're not going to do it. We wouldn't have iron mm. or steel. Like, well, exactly. Which, <laughs> exactly. Which is quite interesting to think about, actually. And I mean, your earliest iron objects come from both China and Egypt. Okay. I was just about to ask, because you were mentioned bog, iron, bog yeah. ore. So I thought, oh, maybe it was, yes. they're only in areas with bog, but no, okay. They're in other... Okay. Okay. Yes, we know we have a really good date from the Tutankhamun dagger, which we know is about um, 1800 to 2200 BP. 
and uh, that makes it one of the earliest iron objects in kind of our hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And that is really special metal because that is from an astro. Uh, well, I say asteroid. I should say actually meteorite because meteorites are smaller. But that's actually from space. <laughs> it's a space. It's space iron. That's the way I like to that's think of so it. Cool. <laughs> that actually, yeah. I think I unfortunately haven't been able to go into that in much detail. But my region of study is uh, Paleo Inuit cultures from the Arctic, and they think that one of the potential ways that the Tunit people, so the, the culture that I look at, was getting iron was indeed from like meteoritic iron or something, which is just so cool. I would uh, love to be able to look into that further. But. That is actually really interesting that you do mention that because I was recently reading a really interesting report uh, along similar lines from that was about the native groups in Greenland doing something very mm, similar. Yes. Yeah, I think that was they they found one source in Greenland or something, right? Like Yes, exactly. And they were making some other uh, I think they were called Ulu knives. Uh Ulu. Yeah, Ulu? Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so that was yeah. quite I thought oh. interesting uh, as well. Which is very cool then that you have the iron coming from from outer space, <laughs> from bogs, yes. so from water basically, and then I suppose the the smelting process so actually breaking it yes. down yourself as well which is uh, well the interesting thing with the space the space iron <laughs> is space iron. Uh, please <laughs> if anyone's researching this use that as your title use it yes, aliens do use did have an effect iron. on archaeology <laughs> indeed <laughs> it's usually actually not refined further so usually it's not smelted down it's usually not put into a furnace oh wow usually it's, it's forged yeah, it's pure enough. What's really cool about it is that it has these structures inside of it called Windmannstotten. And Windmannstotten structures are um, these really crazy looking, almost tree-like, well, I say tree-like, but they're, they're, they occur on acicular uh, grain boundaries. Um, so it's just these crazy lines all intercepting. And Buchwald did a really good research paper on this. Um, and they are still present in the metal because the metal doesn't reach a high enough temperature during the forging process to remove them. And the way they form, it, well, the way that uh, they're forming in these, these kind of meteorites, asteroids, is by traveling through space under heat and pressure for thousands of years ah. while basically on fire. And it's fascinating. I mean, technically they're not on fire because you can't have fire in a vacuum, but they're superheated. Yeah. And it's just, it's remarkable. And usually they're high in nickel as well. So there's like this really special bond between the, the ferrite and the nickel that you only see in those types of uh, metals. And then I presumably then you can indeed identify that from the finished artifact because if they weren't forged yes. enough, that's still there. Oh, amazing. It is. It oh, is. So cool. I mean, now you can See, this, get... This is uh, why we're interested in artifacts. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. I find it really interesting and fascinating as well. And you can also get uh, Wimmenstotten patterning or a similar to Wimmenstotten patterning in certain types of crucible steels as well. If they are cooled slow enough and they're kept hot long enough and they've reached a high enough temperature, which is also really kind of cool. And that's what's called true Damascus. When we see that coming from India, well, more specifically Persia, um, as early as 500 BC. 
um, which is really interesting and quite cool to and think that's about. that's sort of the highest quality steel then? Or? Yeah, it is, in a manner of speaking, because it's uh, it's a combination of Wustite and that Wimmenstotten um, grain structure that really gives a unique appearance to the metal, um, where uh, it has a very unique grain structure that you wouldn't normally see, uh, oh. where the pearlite colonies... They're the and... ones with the really beautiful like waves and things in it. Exactly. Yeah. Now, some of that can be achieved, though, through pattern welding, uh, which is a little bit of a different process than, you know, the true Damascus, which is the formations of, of essentially Wimmenstotten patterns with the Wustite. Um, but, yeah, that's a really long technical thing to talk about. <laughs> Maybe for we another can, day. If people are interested, I'm sure they can find, find various papers. But this is all, I mean, it's so interesting that there's so, I mean, you've been mentioning so many things related to chemistry, you know, percentage of carbon, all the same mm. things. But I guess back in, you know, prehistory or the day, science, the kind of overlap between science and magic or, you know, the, the sort of magical properties or belief systems was, there was it was a lot less of a, of a distinction made, I guess you could say. So I know that from the brief reading that I was doing, a lot of cultures, both historically and maybe prehistorically, and even I think quite a lot of cultures in the present day that still do the more kind of traditional smelting technology and stuff, they had almost magical associations, these blacksmiths, like they were seen as almost a, a shaman mm. figure or something. I mean, do you have, have you had experience with that yourself or uh, what can you say further about that? Well, certainly, yeah. And uh, I think that certainly in the past there was this, since we didn't, they didn't understand the chemi- chemistry, they didn't understand the metallurgy, it was a very much this magical process. I mean, the Romans had this belief that quenching the steel in the urine of a red-headed boy would make it stronger, you know? Okay, so <laughs> you're, you're well like already that. then. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so you see things like that all through history. African groups like the Dogons have been especially a uh, focus in the last 20 years for, for these kinds of uh, ethnographic archaeology reports on uh, myth and magic within metal production because they still have a lot of those superstitions today about you know making the, the smelter is the woman's womb and the iron ore going in mm. is the man's seed and uh, the bloom coming out is the baby being born you know <laughs> which he then put to death on an anvil but you know that's fine well, <laughs> exactly <laughs> there's like all these different there's like there's different processes that go into that mm. you can only drink certain things at certain times around it different stages you can only eat certain things at, at certain times and it's it's very it's very complex shall we say and mm. i think that that mythos then does still exist in some places in the world yeah and i think to some extent in a way we we as blacksmiths sometimes do have our own little rituals and things of that we do that we think work that help yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a matter of I suppose thought process. Yeah. I sometimes add, like when I do things with mild steel. Uh, sometimes I get requests for for you know things that are recycled steel or things that have mild steel, mm. like knives or letter openers. And and so, sometimes what I do is I uh, use a, a ball peen hammer to hammer the the spine of it to try to. I do it at a lower temperature in, in an attempt to create that Newman banding I mentioned. Um, basically, work hardening it to make it a little bit of a stronger steel, mm-hmm. even though it has such a low carbon content. A, you know, I can't tell for certain if it does work. It seems to work. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
I wouldn't know until I cut it in half and looked at it with uh, um, optical luminescence, you know, mm-hmm. um, spectroscopy. Yeah. yeah. Or, so it's kind of one of those things that's, I think it works. It's like you could call it a superstition. It makes sense yeah. in theory because of work hardening and what I know about work hardening, but to verify it, I need to do that extra process of scientific analysis. Hmm. But that's one of the things I like about experimental archaeology is is we get that opportunity often. Yeah, to get to see both sides. And that's interesting. You mentioned the sort of understand, you know, the theory of it works, practical side of it works. Because, I mean, presumably in the past, they wouldn't necessarily have been like, ah, yes, it's reached a temperature of, you know, 150 degrees centigrade and it has 0.7% carbon. You know, they would have just had a f- feeling, you know, or or known, which I guess similar to what you were just talking about then as well. Into, and I guess that's also, I mean, how much do you think they actually understood about the the chemical properties or the kind of practical properties of what they were doing compared to just sort of a feeling or a, a belief in what they were doing? Well, I think that you're um, very right about that. And that's also kind of interesting you do mention that because while they didn't understand the exact degree centigrade, they were able to tell by the color. We still use that today. That's still your pr- predominant purpose actually and, and focus when you're forging things is you tell the temperature of the metal by the color of the metal go from uh, what we call dark cherry red all the way up to what most people call white hot white hot is almost sparking temperature that's the temperature you're really looking at for welding things together under a forge and hammer uh, or i should say hammer and anvil yeah, I mean, we we know that they were using forge welding techniques in the Iron Age already, and um, so it's it's a process that's been around for the better part of basically two thousand years. I remember I that just reminded me of because when these experiments that I did for my thesis was welding for doing forge welding, and I can indeed remember it being white hot and it was just start sparking, and then you had to take it out and hammer it to death basically <laughs> um, to try and uh, get it uh, get it welded. Yeah. But uh, I was, I need to, I still need to write up those experiments. It was what I did for my undergrad. So of course, at that point, you don't think that you're ever going to write something up, but I do need to write it up because speaking, referring a little bit back to the sort of, I guess, magical associations with it. I basically, the the, the thesis topic was looking at how seaweed could have been used in metalworking mm. because there was a site uh, that my supervisor had found in Iceland, a Viking Age site, and they'd found seaweed in the mm. forge area. So I was basically doing a bunch of different experiments to try and work out, okay, could it have been used? Where could it have been used? Does it actually work? With Dave Budd, who's uh, another professional um, archaeologist and experimental archaeologist and blacksmith. But uh, yeah, and it was good fun trying it in all sorts of different things. I used it as a fuel, does not work by the way. And I used it to create a, oh, what's it called? The the thing that binds the metal together when it's a flux to bind the metal together during forge welding. And I made a tar and I did all sorts of things. But one thing that did happen was when I used it as a fuel, in the fire, the smell was very reminiscent of another kind of weed substance, shall we say, um, which uh, obviously I had very limited experience with, but you know, the the smell has a very distinct smell, right? And you could really smell that. And my uh, now husband, then boyfriend was working, helping me and he was working the bellows and he was like, at some point he said, I think I need to step step outside. Like I need to get a bit of fresh air because you did feel a little bit like, whoa, okay. And it made me wonder like, huh, I wonder if that was almost a kind of a ritual, shall we say, you know, of of, uh, getting yourself into the zone, you know, of of doing the kind of uh, magical. I mean, it doesn't surprise me actually. 
Um, it, it would make actual sense if it was used in that way. It's a very interesting concept that, especially because we're talking about Scandinavian people, and we know that the Scandinavians had all kinds of use for hallucinogens mm -hmm. and for mind-altering substances throughout various practices, even battle, which is, you know, the berserker and the mushrooms is just fascinating, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, it was really so, interesting. I need, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I need to write it up at some point. And it also just goes to show that experimental archaeology is great for so many different reasons because you get the the scientific side of things and the theoretical side of things. But then you also, I mean, if I'd done that in a lab, you know, I wouldn't have mm. had that experience at all, which uh, I think is really interesting. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Moving on a little bit. So we did already introduce you in the first section of this episode and what you do, but perhaps we can go into a bit more detail now. So you have this business, Anvil and you, blacksmithing. How did that start? So you mentioned that you, you got into the interest of, of sort of metalworking through your father and um, through that side of things, but when did you decide, okay, this is, this is going to be my job. This is going to be my life from now. Well, I suppose it came about when it was just too difficult to balance my PhD and uh, working as a commercial archaeologist part-time. There just wasn't a lot of companies that were willing to have a part-time commercial archaeologist. Uh, I could not work full-time and do my PhD full-time. It just was too much. Mm. I tried my first year. Um, I tried to do you know 35 hours a week on that and 35 hours a week on my PhD thesis, and that was just... No, so <laughs> I can I can try and picture working like a full time job alongside my PhD. I can't imagine it. <laughs> yeah, it was not fun, especially you know when you're doing the commercial work because you're always covered in mud, you're always wet, you're always cold, you know. And so that was just exhausting. And so I said, well, I need to do something else. And I started, and I was already doing experiments for my PhD um, with mm. with uh, kind of different types of uh, metal production techniques or trying to, you know, see if, if my thoughts and perspectives on some of these production techniques were actually producing the items that I was looking at, shall we say. Hmm. And so I was doing that and I thought, well, you know, I might as well just expand this into a business and that will help me to kind of have a part-time job in essence. And so I did. And then it just kind of grew from there. And Unfortunately, uh, I say unfortunately, but well, it is an unfortunate thing. We've had so many cutbacks with inside uh, archaeology and institutions uh, mm -hmm. in, that it's just become near impossible to get a research position. Mm -hmm. you're, you're competing with people who've been made redundant, who have five or 10 years of experience when you're early career. 
yeah. which makes it very difficult. And so I've just instead gone full bore into becoming a CEO and making a limited company out of what was just a, a little part-time, you know, part-time business that was um, just just um, sole trader type thing, you know. And I mean, which is funny, really, because years ago it was just a hobby that I did when I wasn't working in commercial archaeology, yeah. just for fun, I'd sell things here and there. But I just never imagined that it would become, you know, a limited company today. Yeah. I mean, Out of curiosity, do you find it's it's sort of because you mentioned, oh, I did it as a hobby. I did it for fun. I mean, a lot of people say, don't make your hobby your job because, you know, it won't be fun. But then a lot of people say, oh, no, you know, make your hobby your job because then it's the best, you know, you're just enjoying yourself every day. Which field do you fall into? Uh, well, I'm kind of, it depends on what we're talking about. We'll put it that way. <laughs> like, there are certainly cases where, well, I get wholesale orders now. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I, I work with uh, Past Horizons, who you might, be familiar with oh yeah 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 amazing. <laughs> i make travels for them now oh great congratulations <laughs> well thank you i'm hoping to get a new contract with uh, some of the building companies as well for pointing trowels soon okay mm -hmm. which is also good but then it's producing those trowels in a larger quantity and that can be a little bit tedious shall we say mm, right. because yeah. it, it gets to a point where you're doing the same thing every day and you just get kind of Ugh. yeah yeah but mm. As you grow and do more of that, you can hire somebody else to do a lot of that for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which you is what I'm realizing. Creative director, and then, exactly. Uh, yeah, someone else doing. It. Yeah, it's for me personally the thing that I mean. I always love doing the metalwork. I don't mind doing the metalwork at all. That is always still a passion. Always will be. It's it's the handles. It's the sanding <laughs> of things. It's the putting them together. It's the mm. polishing everything, making it beautiful. That's where I go. Oh, I'm bored. I want to. Something else. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, no. Okay. And you mentioned that you're you're sort of expanding out, I guess, or I suppose you already have expanded out into non-archaeological type things. But what you did get into archaeology was it that that made you decide to sort of have a predominantly archaeological inspiration for the business, or was it just something you fell into? <laughs> Well, I think it was because of my background in archaeology that made me, you know, kind of uh, start to focus first on the archaeology tools, uh, especially, you know, seeing where there were tools that were needed that didn't yet exist. Like, you know, what I call my crypto. Uh, my crypto is becoming more and more popular, and it's a wonderful thing for various types of excavation. It's a nice little picky thing, so that works great. Hmm. You know, you know, people were using before the little minimatics. They're like, oh, that's not quite right. So I started making these things, and it's just like, oh, this works a lot better. It, it <laughs> just pulls things out of the way, shuffles some soil around, shuffles the gravel around, you know. Okay. Don't need a cow boat anymore. So, yeah, they're – well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> No, you still need the cow bone because if you're doing human <laughs> remains or animal remains, you know, different tools, true, different purposes. True, true, always true, true. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. So it just sort of um, fell. It, you filled filled your own hole in your own uh, toolkits then. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's largely based on consumer demand to be mm -hmm. to be to summarize it really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I get surprisingly now, I've been getting, well, actually, ever since lockdown happened and people started getting more into their hobbies, I've been getting more requests for uh, bow makers draw knives, uh -huh. which is brilliant because there's not 
Well, nobody else makes bow makers draw knives right now because Perfect. why would they? I mean, bow making is kind <laughs> of a dead hobby, but it's coming back. So, which is actually quite fun. There's a lot of people like, I want to build my own self bow. And it's like, good for you. Here's a tool to do it. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> I, that actually reminds me, one of the other <laughs> Google autofill questions that I found, which I wasn't sure whether to include, but why don't we do it, was, is blacksmithing still a job? So, I mean, because you've mentioned a few times now that, that you're sort of the only one who makes mm. these different things. How rare is it as a job? Um, I, yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing. If you would talk about like knife making, there are a lot of knife makers and bladesmithers out there. A lot of ham, hammer makers as well. Uh, what we start to see more of a limit in is um, other types of tools, like I was describing. Um, we, we see that there's not as many, shall we say, tools, general toolsmiths uh, as there used to be. And I mean, you certainly see a lot of people doing what I call general ironmongery. So a lot of people do in the drawer pulls and things like that. But usually those are hobbyists who do it mm -hmm. on a weekend or after they've come back from work and they just want to be creative you know yeah mm -hmm. and to be honest a lot of that stuff that those guys make is absolutely phenomenal because it's it's so it's just they've been doing the same drawer pulls for 20 years and yeah. they just have this their own special tools to form them a lot of them make what are called swages and custom swages so they can get a perfect leaf pattern every single time on them which is great okay. but this the dedication to building that can only come out of a hobby because if you try to do it as a business you wouldn't be able to make enough profit back on those items fair enough yeah uh, related to that i mean how if if for example you could you know talk to yourself back when you started anvil and you what is sort of the biggest difficulties that you face as a small business owner? What kind of advice would you give to other people who are thinking of saying, oh, you know, listening into this and saying, well, I enjoy my hobby. Maybe I should make it into a, a business. I think that the best advice I could give in that regard would be to say, Don't it's it. going to take a lot more work on the back end as you grow than you think it is. Um, there's a point, there's a tipping point you're going to reach where you're going to become stagnant. Uh, in terms of profit and sales and marketability and that tipping point at that tipping point you need to decide if you're going to just back off and do it as a hobby do something else main you know for your main income or if you're going to push forward if you're going to push forward then you're going to go from being that sole trader to a limited company and you're going to stop working in your business as much and start working on your business more mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's very good. But I'm making notes <laughs> because, uh, yeah. no, but I think <laughs> it's it's, I, it's true indeed, and especially when it's something I suppose that is more crafty. Indeed, you know, when you're actually producing something, it is even more difficult because you can't just indeed spend all of the time creating anymore. You have to spend more time on admin, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And I mean, it's it's a weird place to be in because when you first go to that limited company type thing, you don't necessarily have all the big, shall we say, monies that you want and need to be able to hire everyone to really streamline things right off the bat. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you get lucky and you have a lot of investors and you can do that, but not always. And as you grow, you can hire more people to help automate more of those administrative tasks and as you can automate more of those administrative tasks the business can grow and develop more and you can you know really push it forward 
Um, so those are always things to think about. And and I guess think of it then as, you know, the prehistoric and first blacksmiths, you know, if they hadn't pushed through and <laughs> continued doing what they did, we wouldn't have steel. Just like with businesses, if you don't push through and, uh, you know, there's a metaphor for you. Um, <laughs> you got to keep well, pushing through exactly. to get the steel. <laughs> well, exactly. And uh, I mean, from my research, come to find that in the Iron Age, uh, a lot of objects came about because they were patrons for those objects to be made. And I mean, for like thinking about chariot wheels, you know, and just building a chariot and just the ironwork on a chariot alone, you're looking at a year of production. Mm. The only way that can happen is if you have people being fed by someone, you know, and their basic needs being met and their shelter being provided for them. So that's patronage. And a lot of times today, we don't have that same patronage in the arts Mm. of any kind, which is unfortunate. And that makes creativity more difficult. And I think that is a problem with the modern era that we haven't addressed is that same patronage on such a wide scale as we saw previously in the past. Yeah. Which, I mean, they're trying to, I guess that's what things like, for example, the crowdfunding platforms and all of this, they're sort of almost getting a bit closer to that again, would you say? Or I think they're trying to. And I think that the, the unfortunate thing, I think, with those kinds of platforms is a lot of times people still seem really, the general public seems really drawn to technology. And unless you're offering something that's technologically innovative, the funding is slow to come in. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is a problem with archaeological inspired uh, crafts, I guess, because the technology exactly. is more based in our past. <laughs> well, exactly. I have a good friend in America who started as an archaeologist and uh, he was, did commercial archaeology for years. He became a pottery specialist and he got tired of doing commercial archaeology and then became a potter. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I mean, <laughs> basically, he just set aside all of his per diem from uh, his jobs um, for starting the business. And after about five years, he had enough money to seed the business. Yeah. And he started at small farmers markets. And uh, now it's his main income. And he sells online. And Amazing. it's incredible. So I guess it's there's a time. will, there's a way. Yes, exactly. That's a good, uh, a good moral to have. So, I mean, we've talked about the difficulties, but what would you say is the most exciting thing that's happened uh, in Anvil and you? And also, do you have any exciting plans for the future if they're not, you know, secret? <laughs> well, uh, I do have some exciting plans for the future. I'm launching a new product line called Dr. X Heritage Tools. Ooh. So I'm bringing about a lot more tool patterns um, with slight renovation in it, or innovation, I should say, to them that are taken from uh, historical texts. Uh, we have a lot of these old tool catalogs from the 18th and 19th centuries of tools that are no longer produced that had specialty purposes. And so we're going to be bringing out some of those tools again, especially as we see hobby crafts increasing. Mm. The first one that will be becoming more widely available will be the what I call the dog-legged ads. Uh, now there's a few different makers of them, you know, just sole trader type people, uh, but there's not any that are being made really on a large scale. Now this is a nice little compact ads. It doesn't have the wood handle. That's just an all steel construction and it makes it a little bit more easy to carry. And it's much more suited for doing small crafts like little bowls or, oh, I don't know, your whatever wood carving in the garden, if you know, you're into that kind of thing. Very cool. So, yeah, so I'll be doing some things like that. And that's a really new, exciting uh, direction that I'm going to be taking that. Also, I'm hoping, uh, well, I shouldn't say, well, not hoping. 
Yeah, I'd say hoping. Hoping is a good way to put it. <laughs> hoping, planning, and we'll see how things go. But I'm, I'm hoping by year three. I mean, that's what I'm kind of planning on, mm-hmm. uh, of having a limited company now, to get more into powder metallurgy because I think there's a really good future for the powder metallurgy and bringing that powder metallurgy into manufacturing to more uh, reinvigorate the manufacturing process because we want to go from producing lots of stuff to sit on warehouse shelves, which is not friendly in terms of carbon Mm -hmm. and instead go on to what I call on-demand manufacture. And that's one of the things that's always at the forefront of my business is that concept of on-demand manufacture produce as it's needed that when materials are not wasted and more specifically the fuels used to produce those materials aren't wasted mm-hmm. because as we know we need all the carbon we have because there's only 0.03 percent or whatever. i know it's a different kind of carbon but um, <laughs> in, uh, uh, in the tools no but that's uh, uh sorry i'm just making a silly joke about the carbon content of steel tools but that's fine um, it's, um it clearly wasn't a very good one <laughs> um, no, I think no. <laughs> But I think, no, I think indeed that's really nice. They're sort of sustainable. And that's what the great thing is of, I think, when businesses start out small is because you are indeed used to doing it on a smaller scale at the beginning. So that that sort of ethos, shall we mm. say, is remains strong, which is, uh, I think, really great. Yes. I mean, it has its own um, set of issues when you start to think about things like powder metallurgy, um, because there, it's a carbon offset equation. And it's something that, you know, you do have to think about because you have to remember that using laser sintering does uh, generate gases as well mm-hmm. so it's it's a very careful equation it's is it better to run the gas forge or is it better to run the laser huh. uh-huh. oh, so, well hopefully <laughs> indeed it uh it uh, builds up yeah i think that probably marks the end of our tea break so That's you know it sounds yeah. like you have a lot to do uh so indeed i should probably let you get back to work then and uh, get back to planning yes. Many knives to grind today. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me today. And, of course, uh, yeah. Yeah, if anyone else wants to find out more about Zach's work with uh, Anvil and you or the research that he's doing or, you know, blacksmithing, archaeology toolkits, anything like that that we've been talking about, check the show notes on the podcast homepage and I'll provide lots of lovely links on there. So uh, hope that you enjoyed our journey today and see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. .com.